there's a beginning of this thing where, you know, a lot of folks are like, well, we stand for racial justice, but, you know, Colin Kaepernick shouldn't have done that on 9-11. There's this weird liberal type of, of line that's kind of trying to cohere that says, we're not Trump, we're not down with that, but we don't think that y'all should be protesting as loud as you're protesting. You're going to want to stick around for this one. We at Democracy in Color are bringing you part one of a two-part special featuring three titans of the literary world, Rebecca Solnit, Jeff Chang, and David Kim. You can listen to both episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. While you're there, please subscribe and rate Democracy in Color on iTunes. This is Democracy in Color, the voice of the new American majority. I'm your host, Amy Allison. Enjoy. Do we participate in a politics of cynicism, or do we participate in a politics of hope? But when we are together, we got power, and we can make decisions. I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. We want to register to become first-class citizens. This is Democracy in Color. I'm Amy Allison, and it's not often that you get three thinkers, um, people with tremendous hearts, artists, to come together in one room here in Democracy in Color studios. And I'm very proud to introduce Jeff Chang, who is uh, the author of the brand new book, We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Segregation. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm just soaking up all the awesomeness yeah. in this room. There's a lot it's in amazing. here. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca Solnit, um, who's an old friend and a wonderful writer, um, winner of many awards, including the National Book Critics Circle Award and contributing editor to Harper's, uh, where uh, and author of 17 books. Something like that. Something like Depends that. Depends on how you count. This is my favorite way to introduce you, Rebecca. You know, the, the person that made mansplaining uh, a, a thing, uh, because I can actually put on Facebook, actually, I'm defriending you because you're mansplaining me, and someone can link to your bio, and that's like, boom. So glad to be of help. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Solnit, thanks so much for joining us. It's really my, a pleasure. It's joy to see you again, Amy. Thank you. And then David Kim, a professor at uh, Connecticut College, uh, all the way out uh, from uh, the East Coast, who's a professor of religious studies and American studies and uh, co-editor of the Stanford University Press series, Race, Religion. David, thank you so much for being oh, here. Thank you for being here. It's such a pleasure and honor to be in conversation with all three of you. David, David, and uh, uh, Jeff and Rebecca have never met in person, so this mm. is kind of a, a thing. Together, yeah, yeah. I think this I've is the met first. you before we, in person, before. but not much. And I haven't yeah. seen. Yeah, but David and I, we skyped enough that I had to remind myself I hadn't seen him in person. <laughs> right, but right. Here we are. It's a special moment, and um, we were able to come together because we're celebrating the release of your book, uh, Jeff. Uh, when you have the title, We're Going to Be All Right, who are you talking about? Uh, and who are you us, talking, hopefully. What are you talking about? <laughs> all of us. So, I, the, you know, it's obviously from the Kendrick Lamar song. And the thing that stands out to me uh, or stood out to me the, the first time about the song was that 95% of the lyrics are about struggle. He's just struggling, 
right? He's going through it. Um, and then seemingly out of the air, he plucks this line, you know, but we're going to be all right. And um, that is really profound and moving. And I think that, you know, it's no mistake, it's no surprise that it's become sort of the anthem for movements all around the world, um, beginning with the movement for black lives. And I think now, you know, you see uh, undocumented folks using it. You see um, young folks using it wherever uh, they are doing their thing. Um, it's powerful. Yeah. And and it speaks, I think, to the, I don't think optimism, but I think um, Rebecca uses this word all the time and David uses this word all the time, but sort of hope and and like love that could be inherent in the movement that we can be moving um, in a direction. That hope in the dark. Are are we just desperate for hope, Rebecca? Right now, is that? And it's interesting. I think a lot of people who are pretty comfortable don't want hope because it makes big demands on us. If you hope that the world can be better, you're saddled with some responsibility to do something about it. You know, I see a lot of desperate people like the Coalition of Amokley Workers. I'm just back from Standing Rock who are passionately hopeful because alternative is terrible, whereas speaking as a middle-class white person, alternative for us for to hope is like watching all of Breaking Bad on the sofa while eating Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> the floor's not that... The floor yeah, is not that... Yeah, low. you know, I mean, it means just checking out and, um, you know, letting yourself off the hook. Is that you where know, we are? I, I, no, I just, I'm not saying that we're there, but I'm saying that... For some people, hope is survival. For some people, hope is responsibility. Despair can have real sources, but, you know, speaking for my pale, privileged people, sometimes it's also just, you know, signing off, checking out, um, you know, letting yourself off the hook. Uh, hope says that, you know, these good things are might be possible if we do something about it. And the tough part is if we do something about it, despair is like you don't have to do anything because we're all we're we always lost. We are losing. We are going to lose. I hear so much about about that. And David, I know you've been uh, thinking and writing about this, too, with Trump and everything that Trump says and represents and what he cultivates um, in our society right now. It is kind of hard to generate the hope. It's like we live in this country and this is happening it is hard to generate hope, but none of us, I think, if we're really honest, want to stay there. I mean, as Rebecca says, you can throw up our hands, we can give up responsibility. I mean, real hope is a prospect for real change. One of the things about the moment of Trump is it's a fortification of this cynicism and skepticism that things aren't going to change. Although I would say, in a, it's a, you know, it's it's white, it's like this kind of reactionary white hope that we can go back to a past that never actually existed, a refusal to understand globalization and, uh, you know, the real sources of poverty and insecurity. And he, he is marketing a kind of hope, a hope that by screwing over every possible category of people of color, putting women back in the kitchen or the bedroom, um, that white men can feel like they're the kings of the universe again. And so that the fact that that's a hope for people is really scary. And part of the project seems to be not only do how do we oppose them electorally, but how do we give them a less 
destructive, less exclusionary, less hateful version of hope. Yeah, I mean, back to you, you know, Jeff. Your book is—is is it was it motivated by trying to give people some hope? I think so. I I, I think that you got to have a reason to get up in the morning, right? Um, and for me, you know, obviously having kids now and thinking about the kind of future that's going to be left to them, in which, you know, the two big questions that they have to face are uh, how do we react to and join together with folks around questions of climate change, right? Um, which somebody called the the quintessential intersectional issue, right? Is it? Is it now? And people are finally ready to I don't, embrace I don't know that. that it is, but I, you know, the, the, other, the other question, of course, being, um, and that's, I think, a, a, something that we can have a longer discussion about. But the other thing being, um, you know, the question of these divisions that have been uh, created, um, um, actively fomented by people who are arguing for this sort of restorationist kind of agenda, uh, restorationist being the restoration of white power. And, um, and, 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 and so leaving to my kids that kind of of future just seems to be uh, unacceptable in so many kinds of ways. And so, you know, the, the things that I have been inspired by over the last two years um, have been, you know, the rise of the movement for black lives and have been about the, the, the upwelling, I think, of young folks across the country trying to find um, ways to be able to raise these questions anew in a period during which um, the the sort of explosion of images in media uh, sort of takes us away from um, what is really going on, where the picture of diversity is substituted in for uh, the actual images of what's really happening, which is resegregation, which is growing inequality all across the board. Yeah, and I... Um I'm struck by having uh, three writers in the studio. What's the artist's role right now? I mean, we're at a particular moment. It does feel like a moment. Every day I wake up, I look at Facebook or whatever, and I go, okay, we're in a moment. I can't believe this thing is also happening. So what's your role? Well, I think in the one role, the artist plays a role of being a diagnostician, helping us make sense of the moment, but also plays that role of presenting the imagination. Like, how do we imagine things differently, right? If things are going to be all right. Like, how do we imagine those conditions, you know, so that we don't revert back to something that keeps us tight? You know, I think one of the things I'm hearing in our conversation is that, you know, hope is something to, to fight for, right? So that there are forms of false hope, shallow hope, dark hope, that left to their own devices, people will exploit them. White supremacy will exploit it. Capitalists will exploit that. How do we give your kids, my kids, your kids, resources to imagine differently? There's a theologian I quote in the introduction to The New Hope Within the Dark uh, who says this wonderful thing about how hope is really rooted in the past. I think also what what Jeff and I try and do is give people histories of our power. History For me, it's about reminding people we have won before, that we are in a world that's changed very radically, in some ways for the worse, but I'm old enough. I was born in the middle of the civil rights movement when to be 
gay or lesbian was to be treated as mentally ill, Ill criminal or both, when there was no language to talk about the environment, when not only were those, you know, where women were discriminated against as a matter of course, excluded from the Ivy Leagues, from the military, from, you know, almost all walks of life. There were no, there was like one woman senator when I was born and nobody thought there should be two. And, you know, to recognize that we have these long arcs in which we have achieved remarkable things. We, you know, and we've also lost a lot. How do you give people stories that remind them that we can be very powerful, that sometimes we win, and that, you know, as well as sometimes we lose. How do you give people the sense of their own power? I think some of it lies, you know, our hope for the future lies in part in the stories about the past. Mm. And there's not a sense, uh, you know, starting with our public education system, there's just not a sense of a commitment to studying where we've been, um, having that kind of story. Mm -hmm. And so it always feels as if there's a recovery thing that's happening, a recovery process that's happening, I think, in the in the process of writing. Um, and I think uh, in a lot of ways, I've been motivated by uh, trying to understand the gap between um, the knowledges that I guess I've been able to accumulate and that, you know, our, our folks from our generation have been able to accumulate and the students uh, and where they're at at this particular moment and trying to think about, okay, well, what is, what is it that they haven't been told? What are the stories that they haven't been told? Um, and there's so much. That's right. right. At Stanford, you work with students. Yeah, I work with students at Stanford, yeah. and, and I work Same with, with a lot David, of young people. Same with you, David, with students, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Rebecca teaches as well. Every uh, once in a while. Yeah. Every once in a while. So I really like, yeah. What do they, what is this generation? Here, I, okay, when you said, Rebecca, you're born in the middle of the civil rights era, so what generation do you identify with? I try really hard not to be a baby boomer because baby boomers drive me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of on the cusp. You're on the cusp. And I always say I'm, I'm, I'm Gen X. Uh -huh. Jeff and I are Gen uh, yeah, X. Yeah, I think you and I are. Yeah. We're, the, we're the forgotten, crushed generation. <laughs> what do you identify with, David? As am I. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know. yeah. Three so, Xers so, and a boomer. And then, a reluctant, no. a reluctant boomer. Sorry, a reluctant boomer. Right. A boomer in denial. Right. Trying. Boomer cusp in denial. Right. Sort of Gen X. Gen, you know, Gen like, X-ish. Oh, and it's also like being my age, I feel like, because I left home at 17, I was really poor. I put myself through college and grad school, and I could see housing costs going up, tuition going up. I feel like I was sprinting with doors slamming behind me. And that's part of the knowledge I want for young people. Like, you know, like we don't have to look to foreign countries to talk about free university. We can look at California mm -hmm. 30 years ago. Absolutely. We can, you know, and Stanford was free um, when it was founded. It was, you know, this this weird vision by the ultimate robber barons of a free education for <laughs> California's boys and girls. <laughs> you know, and I feel like remembering for young people, remembering that there was no homelessness, that people were not broken by medical debt. Like even the history of, you know, that far off Shangri-La of exotic socialism of, say, 1975, <laughs> you know, would be really helpful for them. You know, I mean, I see Before the, the dark age of right, Carter. I see the big yeah. afros and I see the, the, I see the washed out, you know, like denim. I see yeah. that they, yeah. the, I see the, um, the, the nod to 1975, but I don't see the knowledge from 1975 and the millennials. I If you work for, with undergrads, are you seeing that uh, in terms of this kind of yeah, understanding. I, mean, I, I think one of the challenges is it's not just to tell the stories, but it's to convince these young people that it's their story. Yeah. Right. I mean, so you know, yeah. Trump is brilliant at convincing 
all sorts of folks that this particular story about white supremacy, this particular story about American exceptionalism, is their story. And that's the only one that they should believe in. The young folks, amazingly, are engaged in this, this, this uh, vibrant refusal, saying, you know, there are actually other stories, there are other options for us. Mm-hmm. And that idea that they will vigorously fight for options, for resources. I mean, the thing that impresses me about this generation is that they're tremendously resourceful. Mm-hmm. You know, they're really looking, they're asking questions, they're not, they won't take uncritically their inheritance. You know, someone, you know, I, I refer to myself as a silverback. A silverback tells them, you know, this is your story. And they're like, wait, hold on a second. You know, explain that to me. Justify that to me. You know, let, let, me, let me stress test that. Make sure that it's actually mine. Yeah, but someone from Gen X would say, they don't listen to us. They're not listening. Because we were out there fighting for multicultural education. And we were out there trying to, you know, work to end um, investment in apartheid, for example. Yeah. And, you know, we... and, and actually, you know, the, the, here's the interesting thing is, is I started noting this, noting, noticing this about 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, um, was that, yes, there's a huge gap in what's taught certainly about movements in this country, social movements in this country, unless you're sort of that sociology student that's like focusing on social movements and you found that one professor who's going to teach that uh, type of thing. Students are constantly uh, in recovery of, of these kinds of stories or seeking the recovery of these, these kinds of stories. And so um, about 10 years ago, students would start calling me and say, what happened here? <laughs> you know, what happened here leading us into this moment in which we're uh, fighting around fee increases at the university level? What's the history of this type of stuff? And I'd be like, wow, like you're knocking on my door asking me. I, I feel actually like responsible now mm. to be able to give you sort of a history of the lost 80s into the lost 90s um, up until this particular moment, you know, where you're in the middle of. Uh, a new decade in the new millennium and um, don't necessarily understand the actual defunding of the public universities. Um, and so students started calling me and, and at that time I was just writing and that kind of thing. So I'd go and, and I'd you know, say things here and there. And after a while I realized, well, actually, this is a huge piece of the story that's missing. It's not, you're never going to get a CNN series you know what I mean? I'm still called the 19, yeah, <laughs> called the 1990s or the 1980s in which there are um, uh, images of us, right, talking about student protests or, you know, taking over the main quad at Stanford to fight for, uh, you know, a more diverse faculty and changes in curriculum. Um, and so I show these images and I tell these stories and students, uh, suddenly everything locks into place. Yeah. Uh, for them. And know? they see and they identify the forebearers. And they identify the forebearers and they realize, again, too, like there were folks that came before. And and that's a powerful type of thing. So I, I feel really privileged, actually, to be able to do that, to actually have that job. Yeah, I did, I, I'm still mystified by the millennials. Like how did how it did Black Lives Matter all of it because when you say the lost 80s and I, I totally felt that. Mm-hmm. Now we have the Alumni Association asking me to come and talk about social activism and what the alums are going to do. They're trying to bridge that gap between the powerful activism they're seeing right now from this generation and, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years back, back, back. So I'm just, I'm still trying to understand what happened for, with this, what made this generation. 
I love, you know, I'm not sure what made them, but I love their refusal of separateness that they, I think partly growing up on hip hop has made a lot of kids of uh, other colors feel like, you know, really not feel disconnected from blackness. And so many young people who weren't black are passionately committed to Black Lives Matter's goals and values. The refusal to see, to define their sexuality in neat little boxes and huge numbers of people in their late teens now are just really fluid about their orientation, the objects of their desire. And there, there is this, you know, it's not like beautiful melting pot, whatever exactly, but there is this, this real toughness. And I, you know, I'm, I'm one of my great friends is Astra Taylor, who's working very hard with debt strike against uh, student uh, tuition debt and stuff. And I see a kind of fierceness I mean, I feel like the radicalism of the baby boomers, who I disavow, really, <laughs> a lot of it, not not the Panthers in the Civil Rights Movement, but a lot of the white stuff came out of a kind of privilege. You couldn't hardly fuck up bad enough. Bad enough. Oh, I said that. Should I we say we're, that? We're not on CNN. Yes. Okay. <laughs> good. Okay. Okay. I'm okay I with it. used to be on the air. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you, know, you know that there was so much fat of the land. There are all these you mm. people got free land for hippie communes and urban communes. The cities were white flight, left lots of space in cities for people and things like that. There was just a lot of affluence that they coasted on. And there's a kind of incredible toughness now for kids. I think it scares some people into like, oh, I've got to get an MBA or I'm going to be pushing a shopping cart down the street and living under a freeway. But I think a lot of the rest of them are kind of like, somebody said a wonderful thing to me, they're not disillusioned because they are never they were never illusioned. <laughs> and there is this sense where they just have a kind of street smarts about government and authorities and rules and financial stuff. And of course, that can go too far into like, oh, it's an evil construct we can't do anything about. But I see it. I find them pretty awesome. And as a feminist, I also see a lot of fierce young women who are beautifully, shame, fearlessly, shamelessly feminist, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of that Gen X apologeticness, where it's like, you know, that I'm not a feminist, but kind of stuff yeah, yeah, or... Yeah. Or like feminism didn't do anything or feminism failed or all those ridiculous stories we got told, you know, as though we're going to overthrow 5,000 years of patriarchy in 20 years or it was a Mm -hmm. write-off. But there is this happening with the students too, the young folks. On the one hand, I I think I absolutely agree with you, Rebecca, that they don't identify easily with racial categories, gender categories, and class and so on. but there, you're, I'm sure you're seeing this at Stanford too. This kind of doubling down on a certain form of identity politics, you know. And 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 and. What do you mean by that? Well, <clears throat> so for example, I've been invited to three campuses in the next month, mm-hmm. where, you know, you'll have Latino students saying to Latino faculty, "You don't understand what's going on with me." Mm-hmm. This to progressive, you know, Latino mm-hmm. faculty or black students saying to black faculty, and there's something going on that's generational mm-hmm. that I'm not quite, I I can't quite put my finger on. Right there is a sense of not being fully understood. Um, I mean, you see this with the you know the Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter debate, if you want to call it. I mean, it's not even a debate, really. Um, you know that there's something at stake for these young folks, and I think you're right. I mean, they they they're tough-minded, but I don't know that they have given enough time to be tender-hearted. Well, you know. I- I, I kind of take maybe a, a different point of view sure. of that. Um, I feel like the the student protests that broke out last fall 
um, prompted by, of course, you know, the, the Jonathan Butler's hunger strike at University of Missouri, and then spreading across the country to like more than 100 plus universities. Um, so they would have a website called The Demands. The Demands, exactly yeah. right. And, and two things about that. One is, is that um, I was struck, I was totally struck um, and Amy, I, I know you'll feel me on this, it, by the similarity of the demands that students were making uh, last fall, right? And the similarities with the demand, to, to the similarity to the demands that we have been making in the 80s and the 90s, right? People are asking for more diverse faculty, more classes uh, about race and ethnic studies, more cultural centers, more, and this is new, more mental health professionals who are culturally sensitive, um, and on and on and on, like structural changes. I mean, the national debate has been focused on uh, whatever trigger warnings and safe spaces and freedom of expression, um, and it's a red herring. That's not what students have been asking for. The the very few campuses, probably about a handful, maybe a little more than a handful, ask for speech code changes. Um, you know, upwards of of fifty percent of them, plus. More than that, I, I, can, I actually couldn't tell you the actual number, but more than 50%, I would say more than half, are asking for structural mm -hmm. shifts for, um, for the kinds of stuff that we were demanding in the 90s, right? And to me, what I see is they get press releases, they get website stuff, they get mailers in which there's pictures of this happy, diverse mm -hmm. group of folks all holding hands and... and and talking about Plato together, I guess. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you see this on all of the brochures. It's mm -hmm. how campuses signal their vitality to students and their parents these days, right? Um, and then they get to campus, and they're like, what happened? I just call, got called a racial slur. Mm -hmm. I just um, dealt with a situation in which um, somebody uh, was, was making assumptions about me that didn't that, that, that made me feel uncomfortable and an outsider. Um, man, I'm actually having a really difficult time here making a cultural adjustment, but there's no counselors for me to be able to talk to about this kind of stuff. There's no staff members for me to be able to talk to about this stuff. There is nobody on campus that understands what my issue is. And then suddenly there's this thing where students are all saying that together, mm. right? Mm. And then you get this explosion uh, of, of protest, right? And so I was talking... Um, with one of the architects of, uh, of the power shift in South Africa, somebody from the ANC, and he said, you know, we used to fight. It was blood and it was war, and now my daughter's involved in Roads Must Fall. And I said, well, look, you know, um, this is maybe seeming like a symbolic fight to you. This is for them um, that Fananian moment of discovering themselves and finding the stories that that and the narrative that they're going to write themselves into. Why race? You know, at first I was thinking Black Lives Matters and the, I mean, we're in the Bay Area, so we have Asians for Black Lives and, you know, brown brown people for Black Power. We have all of these uh, indications that there's uh, people of different groups who are supporting what's happening and really forcing the issue of a conversation with with race uh, on race and. For me, being biracial, it's always like I always sort of felt like a, a little bit of a unicorn, my understanding and my ability to talk about race. Now it's everybody uh, confronting. I know what's happening in college campuses. I know that people are talking about it in workplaces and things like that. Uh, is this the generation that's going to help us figure it out? 
Ooh. I think this I, is. You we know. hope so. Yeah, we hope so. I mean, I, I, you know, I think we're going to get home. It's going to be all right yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I think, I think it's a generation that's going, it's going to insist on it being front and center. You know, I mean, I think about what happened in the, in the 80s and the kind of domestication of radicalism, right? the absorption of radicalism and, and, you know, the confinement of it and, you know, the taming that, you know, the Reagan years did to radicalism. You know, that was a, a dark and despairing time. What do you mean, the taming? Well, the taming and saying, you know, even the idea of political correctness, just use that as an example, right? that it's, it's not about an argument for human dignity. It's something that, you know, it's superficial, you know, that you're just looking for some kind of uh, mild forms of respect. And we still hear that with Trump <clears throat> and today. Still, and we still yeah. hear that today. And not, you know, uh, so that what these young folks are doing, the millennials and otherwise, or young ne'er-do-well boomers, um, are saying, you know, it's actually a lot at stake. You know, racism, there's a lot at stake. Sexism, there's a lot at stake. Homophobia and so on. It's not just a mere insult. And that, going back to history, it reverberates down into my core. You know, if I need a mental health professional. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I'm struck about, I, mean, I totally agree with your analysis, Jeff. Like, one of the things I'm struck about the, these students is that even in that extremely difficult condition, right, even after, you know, even being under assault, even being in a time where Everything is strange. You're going to college. That's just strange anyhow. You know, I mean, you know, it's just a strange time. And that they would find, they would muster up this kind of energy to say, you know, I'm going to fight for myself. I'm going to fight together. I, fight, I identify with other, other folks in my generation. It, 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 I, I can't help but admire this. You know, because, you know, you know, you're remarkable back about, well, why not just watch Breaking Bad and eat Doritos, right? That's for boomers. That's for boomers. Okay. All right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, but but you know that that it it it's, it's it says a lot about collective character. The collective character of the generation. Collective character of the generation, but also the moment to insist that we're going to have to talk about race, address race yeah, yeah. squarely. There is just it seems to me, and we are a multiracial group right here having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me there's not enough people having these kind of conversations mm-hmm. about race. And uh, Rebecca, when you go back, you look at the the history of race and how race, you know, that the, the the, the um, poison of racism has infected every single structure, you know, every single thing that's familiar to the point where when you address it, it hurts so bad that you mm. think something's wrong with you. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, I, I just I wonder how we're going to get through this in, in a way that feels uh, that everyone doesn't retreat to their corner. Um, we're in an increasingly multimodal, multi multicultural environment. This country is becoming multiracial in every way, and uh, white uh, people are not at the center. So how do what's what? How do we get through that? And I just—it's a big question. But I just—I just have big questions with the, these three. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, somebody in here in this room, tell me. <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because like, we can't. It's hard to generalize about groups of people, but I do see a lot of really encouraging things. I and mean, you look at homophobia declining by age so that it's essentially old people are much more homophobic than young people. And something that's been really profound for me as somebody who's worked very hard on feminism for the last decade or so is that a lot of men, 
It used to be, and it's funny because, like, for decades, it was like feminism is women's work, and it's like, oh, are only black people supposed to care about racism? Mm -hmm. You know, um, mm -hmm. racism doesn't cease until white people stop being racist mm -hmm. and stuff. But I've really seen a lot of men actively engage with feminism, like it's you know, with a sense of it's my job to speak out when I see sexism. You know that not being a rapist is like not the upper limit of what you can do about you know misogyny and stuff. And so I see on all these things people really engaging. And I just came back from Standing Rock in North Dakota. A lot of white people are showing up there, and I see the white people showing up for each other as this willingness to engage. And you know, and this this is like the hopeful interpretation. We have a lot of work to do. We have this incredibly scary retrograde Trumpian mm. zone to deal with. But I do see people showing up for each other in ways that feels different than... And I remember the Castro in the 1970s where it felt like gay men were for gay men, but mm -hmm. the idea of being an allies and of solidarity. And then while I've got the mic, I just want to put in a word for the 80s because I see a lot of the great... <laughs> the great just a shout-out to the as, 80s. As a shout-out to the 80s. And, the 80s are somewhere Do you know the two? Yeah, 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 yeah. But the 80s, there's all this radical stuff happened. Mm. People, Because we have this bullshit myth of the 60s that yep. pretends yep. that everything happened then and then we all went home. In the 80s, and a lot of the major feminist work mm. and law and That's consciousness right. around... The relationship between sex and power was done in the 80s. A lot of gay rights work was mm -hmm. done in the 80s. But also, like, at Occupy, the consensus process came out mm -hmm. of fe the feminist um, role in anti-nuclear organizing in the late 70s and 80s. And it felt like the mm -hmm. 80s was the cleanup crew for the 60s mm -hmm. to deal with <laughs> paranoia and, vi and the sort of violence as a really unsuccessful strategy mm. and cultism and things like that. And, and that it was a kind of start over. Let's form a broad foundation with tools that work around organizing. And you look at it internationally, there's the revolution in the, the, the people power revolution in the mm -hmm. Philippines, mm -hmm. the velvet revolution in Czechoslovakia and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the, this thing, I like, you know... I don't mean maybe you okay, all Rebecca, were still in high school have, or something. Have, no, you can have the 80s. Back. You can have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to own them. I have yeah, more. Yeah. I want to write about them someday soon because people don't remember just like all this. And of course, Reaganism was this whole beginning of the complete destruction of the United States economically and of corporate, you know, corporate globalization, and it never really stopped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and the and the creation, the end of the Great Society, um, you know. Um, all the all the anti-poverty projects, and that's something I think people should know: is how did we create this huge economic divide? That and there were like 13 billionaires in the United States in 1982. There's now more than 500, mm -hmm. and you look at that, you can correlate that to prison populations, mm -hmm. to right. poverty, to all these things. And that's one of the things I love about Jeff's book: is you start to see these things in relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I, I have to ask, what do you think is, you know, how do you respond to the, the hope? You have a hopeful message in your book. Mm -hmm. uh, Rebecca frames the 80s. I I'm just, before I even go, I go was ahead. just telling David before we got on the air that the first time I actually heard the term feminism, I was getting a speech from, a boot, from, from my uh, drill sergeant at boot camp mm. about how to survive a nuclear blast. We had our BDUs and they said, make sure wear your helmet. Find a low-level spot, hmm. uh, lay on your stomach, and face your helmet 
toward the blast. Now, you're going to feel a hot wave come over you. Don't stand up yet. Wait for it to come back. <laughs> then go on your way. That's how. To... And then. Damn. And then he was saying how uh, these protesters, talking about anti-nuke protesters, and. That's me. And the feminist B-word, Jane Fonda. Mm. Like, I don't know how he got there. Mm. I didn't even know what a feminist really was. I was only 17. Mm. That was my introduction to the concept of feminism was in that context. So the fight against the things that in the, in the, <laughs> in the 70s, we had this like, yeah. this like, you know, I thought it was the age of Aquarius type thing, you know, mm. where there was all this revolutionary ideas about who we are and how we relate to each other uh, that were like directly in the... Uh, and the crosshairs of people who wanted to maintain the system. So, so having my little speech, my little story. Hmm. Okay, so looking <laughs> at your book, uh-huh. how do we how do we think through some of those issues? How do we reclaim some of this legacy and this history? The 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 legacy of of your drill sergeant? Or, well, what do you, what do you, <laughs> well I don't want that legacy. I'll pass on that one. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, that's, I think that's why we write, right? That's why we, that's why we teach, right? That's, that's why we're, we're, uh, you know, doing the work that we do with media, right? Um, is to be able to make sure that there's a sort of continuity and that there's, there's this sort of, uh, recovering of, of things that people are, uh, are able to, to then reformulate their reaction for, for this particular period. Um, I, you know, the the just talking about the 80s and the 90s uh for me is is really um it's really interesting i think you know with who be i wanted to go back and kind of recover that particular period and what it felt like to be in the culture wars mm-hmm. um and i didn't know when i was writing it that you know i mean i felt like the the storm clouds are gathering again um around this and then certainly by the time i finished the book it was like it was like in full effect right um but in 2009, like, we had inklings, but it didn't, you know, the beer summit and the way that all turned out and everything. But we didn't know that it was going to be what it became. Um, and and so the 80s and the 90s, is to, to think about the sort of culture wars and how they've come back, right, and how the debates are, are in some ways uh, recapitulating themselves. So that the the big debate in the 1990s was... Uh, amongst certain sectors of the left, a large part of whom was here in San Francisco, was should we abandon uh, feminism and identity politics uh, in order to be able to move the left forward, right? And a lot of folks came to the conclusion that they should. Mother Jones Magazine did a whole bunch of stuff around, like, we should stand against affirmative action. We should stand uh, against more increased uh, immigration. Um, We have to really focus on a class analysis, as if you couldn't have any kind of intersectionality. And I see that actually beginning to happen now, um, ironically, with these debates around freedom of expression in the left. that there's a beginning of this thing where, you know, a lot of folks are like, well, we stand for racial justice, but, you know, Colin Kaepernick shouldn't have done that on 9-11. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. there, there's, there's this sort of weird liberal type of, of line that's kind of trying to cohere that says we're not Trump. We're not down with that. But we don't think that y'all should be protesting as loud as you're protesting. And I think that that's something that we have to 
to watch for and be careful of. All right, Jeff sure, Chang, sure. Uh, Jeff Chang, uh, David Kem, Rebecca Solnit. That's in it, part one. Oh, wow. Okay. Wait, no, we're going to get into it. We're <laughs> yeah. going to keep, keep going. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right, good. Thank you. Okay, all thank for, you. Um, uh, for being here in this part of the conversation. Democracy in Color is a project of Power Pack Plus. This episode was recorded in Emeryville, California, and produced by Lulu Matute, Andreas Calderon, and uh, with technical support from Anthony Hernandez and our social media maven, Olivia Parker. Special thanks to our guests, Rebecca Solnit, Jeff Chang, and David Kim. You can listen to future episodes on democracyandcolor.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you appreciate this podcast as much as we appreciate you, well, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. Tell a friend, a colleague, or a neighbor to tune in for their dose of political intelligence. So until next time, thanks for joining us.